Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. The text for the sermon this evening is verses 4 through 8. I'm not going to read that a second time, so just take note of those verses. This is God's Word, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we don't usually think of the book of Revelation as a letter or an epistle. We tend to think of it as a prophecy, and of course it contains prophecy. But the book of Revelation is in fact a letter. Just as Paul wrote letters to the churches in Rome and Galatia, which letters were read publicly to the congregation, so John writes the Apocalypse or the Revelation of Jesus Christ in the form of a letter to seven churches which could be found in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. You should picture congregations much like this one, a gathering of believers and their children, a pastor holding a scroll up with writing on it, the writing of John reading out these words as the people sit and listen. Like all letters written to the church, this one begins with a greeting and a benediction. A benediction is a pronouncement of blessing. A benediction is more than a mere wish. A benediction is more than a prayer. A benediction is a declaration, a pronouncement that comes on authority the authority of the triune God, the God who always and only speaks the truth. And this is what that God says to His church. Grace be unto you and peace. That makes this benediction a very powerful and personal word of God to us, beloved God is speaking to you. He's speaking to you with every bit as much power as when He spoke the first word in the beginning. And in response to that word, there was light. He's speaking to you with every bit as much authority as when He spoke from Mount Sinai in the midst of the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire. He's speaking to you directly. He's speaking to you personally. He's speaking to you. To everyone who believes. Are you listening? This is what he says. Grace be unto you. And peace. And how we need to hear that benediction, beloved, as we live in the last days. We know dreadful things are coming, aren't they? The trumpets that announce the Lord's coming also unleash plagues and devastation in this world as this book of Revelation records. It is as... The book of Acts says through much tribulation, through much suffering, that we must enter the kingdom of God. There's dreadful things in the future. There is a cross for every Christian who follows Jesus Christ. But we can face that 
We can face it if we know that this is the benediction that God pronounces over us. Grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before the throne of God and from Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ who is coming. Coming for you. I call our attention this evening to our text and the theme for the sermon is benediction from Christ who is coming. First, we will unpack the meaning of this benediction, specifically the importance of the fact that this benediction comes from the triune God, the God which is and which was and which is to come, who is the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ, and also what the words grace and peace mean. Then secondly, the certainty of that benediction for us that we can embrace with the true faith. And then finally, the calling that this text places upon us as Christians. Benediction from Christ who is coming. First, the meaning. Secondly, the certainty. Finally, the calling. This benediction of grace and peace comes to us from the triune God. It comes to us, first of all, according to verse 4, from Him which is and which was and which is to come. Now you can say on the one hand that that phrase, Him which is and which was and which is to come, is talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. About all three persons, we can say He is Him which is and which was and which is to come, which is why Jesus later on claims that same designation for Himself in verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, that's the risen, ascended, and exalted Jesus Christ, the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. Father and Son and Spirit can be described that way. Thus the benediction comes from the Almighty God who created and upholds all things by His Word and who breathes out life by His Spirit. The benediction comes to us from that God who is eternally blessed in Himself because eternally He is the covenant God, the family God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Father who blesses His Son always with peace, the Son who breathes out grace and love to His Father, the Spirit who is always passing between Father and Son, and now that triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit proclaims to His own children, grace be unto you and peace. On the other hand, it is appropriate to find in that phrase a reference more specifically to the person of the Father. The Father is Him which is and which was and which is to come. The Father is, according to our Belgic confession, the source, the source of all things visible and invisible, and therefore the Father also is the source of this benediction. From deep within the heart of this Father, the same Father who eternally out of His own person and being begets His eternal Son, from out of His heart comes this benediction, this blessing that He pronounces upon His children. 
Those children whom He sovereignly claims as His own in election. Those children whom He decisively adopts through the blood of Jesus Christ. Upon them He proclaims, this Father does, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come. Let that thought, beloved, marinate in your soul for a while as you think on these things. The Father, God the Father, who created the stars, who upholds this whole world in the palm of His hand, pronounces upon you who believe in Him, who are His children, grace, be unto you and peace. This benediction comes also according to verse 4 from the seven spirits which are before His throne. The number seven comes up often in this book of Revelation and is a significant number. You probably know that the number seven is the number of the covenant. You might also know that the number seven is a number that speaks of completion and that these two ideas are actually connected in the number seven. Seven is biblical shorthand that refers to the completion of God's covenant purposes. Why that is the case goes back to the very first week of history. God was acting as the covenant God when He created the universe including human beings, in six days. One, two, three, four, five, six. Created the whole world. Then God signified the completion of His covenant purpose of creation when He rested on the seventh day and enjoyed fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden and enjoyed the fruits of His labor. Seven is Sabbath, you see. Seven is rest. Rest with God in the enjoyment of the fruits of His work, and specifically His covenant work. That helps us explain why the text speaks of the seven spirits which are before the throne of God. To understand what's going on here, you have to look ahead in the chapter. And when you do that, you'll find that Christ is standing among seven golden candlesticks. Now the Apostle John wrote, this epistle, this apocalypse, when he was an old man already. But John remembered when, as a younger man, he had visited the temple in Jerusalem. And when he had gone there and looked through the front door into the holy place, he had seen a candlestick there, a candlestick that had seven branches and that had flames on the top of those seven branches. And the fire of those flames that came out of the seven branches of that candlestick was fed by the oil from a single vessel. And that oil was a symbol of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, which gives light to His people and warmth and life. So that's in John's memory. And that's part of the collective consciousness of God's people. Now, by the time John wrote these words, that temple had been destroyed already and the candlestick had been carried off by the Romans as plunder. But the seven spirits who give light and life to the people of God, of which that candlestick and its flame was a type, 
are still present before the throne of God. There are seven of them, not because the Holy Spirit is divided into seven persons. There are seven of them because the number seven refers to the completion of God's covenant purpose. And so the seven spirits represents the fullness of the Spirit which has been poured out upon the church upon the completion of the work of the Messiah. These seven spirits are the oil that feeds the, the flame that burns in those seven candlesticks that are before the throne of God but are also in the seven churches. But at the same time, these seven spirits are the one spirit of Jehovah. And that has to be the case for the divine benediction is pronounced upon the church by these seven spirits. These seven spirits declare what only the one God with His one spirit has the authority and power to declare grace and peace be unto you from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits. And that's how this benediction is able to reach us, beloved. It reaches us through that candlestick which the exalted Jesus Christ has implanted in this church. The seven spirits are before the throne of God, but they are also in the church, that is, in the local congregation, the local congregation that bears the marks of the true church where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed from the pulpit. And those spirits give light and life and warmth and blessing to the church through the preaching of the gospel. God speaks to you, beloved. That's the point. God speaks to you in fulfillment of all of His covenant work. He speaks to you through the preaching of the gospel. And by His Spirit, He declares unto you the benediction, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before the throne of God. And, verse 5, from Jesus Christ. That is, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. In Greek, from Jesus Christ, who is the, the faithful martyr. The martyr, the witness, who came to do God's will who came visibly to represent the triune God and who did not stop in His work of witnessing to His Father even though His life was on the line and even though witnessing to the Father cost Him His life which He must lay down for His bride. And as the faithful witness, as God's prophet, He declares to the people whom He loves, grace be unto you and peace from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the firstborn, that is, the firstborn who has conquered death and as the conqueror of death has entered into His inheritance, has ascended up to live with His Father at the right hand of God, who lives even now there as our advocate, as our intercessor, as our high priest, who sanctifies us and consecrates us so that we are kings and priests along with Him, but He as the High Priest. And as the High Priest, He declares unto us the benediction that the High Priest always declared, grace be unto you and peace. 
That benediction comes to us from Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of the kings of the earth, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The King to whom all earthly kings will answer one day for the way they executed their offices. The King who sits in the heavens and laughs as the rulers of this world take counsel against Him, seeking to overthrow His rule. The King who is your King, who fights for you, who has fought for you, who defends you, who represents you, And as God's king, appoint, as God's appointed king, he declares to his subjects, grace be unto you and peace. That benediction comes to us according to verse 5 from Jesus Christ, who loved us. Who loved us. That benediction comes to us from Jesus Christ who washes us with His own blood. That benediction comes to us from Jesus Christ whose Father is the God which is and which was and which is to come. The benediction comes to us from Jesus Christ who stands among the seven candlesticks that set, shed forth the light and the life of the seven spirits of God because Jesus Christ Himself is there before the throne of God along with those seven spirits. The benediction comes to us from Jesus Christ who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the One who Himself is He which is and which was and which is to come. The benediction comes to you, beloved, from Jesus Christ who is coming again, coming with the clouds, coming so that every eye shall see Him, including those who pierced Him. The benediction comes to us from Jesus Christ at whose coming all the nations of the earth shall wail because of Him. That Jesus Christ declares to the seven churches His complete Covenant bride, His people whom He loves, whom He washes with His own blood, He declares unto you, grace be unto you and peace. Grace be unto you, beloved. You know what it's like when it's been cloudy for days on end so that your soul begins to sink. You know what that's like and I know what that's like because that's been our experience for the last month or so. seems longer than that. So dark, so dreary, so gray. We all just want a little sunshine to peek out. And then the clouds part a bit and you see a patch of blue sky and maybe a few rays of sunlight streaming through. Then those clouds part a little bit more and you can feel the warmth of the sun on your skin once again. And you start to cheer up and be encouraged. 
Well, that's like grace. Except grace is not the sun shining on you. The sun shines on all men. Grace is when the face of the glorious God shines on you, beloved. This is grace. When God's representative stands before you and pronounces on the authority of God, Jehovah bless you and keep you. Jehovah make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Jehovah lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace be unto you. The word grace means beauty. That's what it means. We use that word a lot. And we have a lot of applications for that word. But at bottom, that's what it means. Beauty. Beauty. The amazing thing about that is, of course, that it's pronounced upon us And there's no beauty to be found in us, is there? Not by nature. This book of Revelation is going to go on to describe seven churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and so on. And it's not going to hold back in the description of those churches and what they were like. It's going to talk about some of the positive things that could be seen in those churches, but it's also going to talk a lot about the negative things that could be found in those churches, the warts, the defects, the problems. In many respects, those churches were ugly churches. Those churches, when you read the description of them, in many respects were unfaithful to Christ. Those churches had false teachers in them who led God's people astray, led them back into the world, caused them to lust after the flesh and to pursue the pride of life. Those churches had pride in them and were proud. Those churches were often loose and careless, some of them. Some of those churches were beaten down broken down at their wit's end because they were facing tribulation and they were enduring suffering and they didn't know how they could keep going on. Could they persevere? Would they make it to the end? Problems, ugliness, sin, distortion. Ugly churches in many respects. But of course, that's exactly why this benediction is so important to those churches. From the triune God, Him which is and which was and which is to come, the beautiful seven spirits which are before the throne of that glorious God and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness from Him, grace be unto you. You need it. You need it. Oh, how you need it. You have no sunshine in yourself. All you have is darkness. You have no warmth in yourself. All you have is coldness. You need the face of God to shine on you. And it does. It does. Grace be unto you. That's the benediction. Grace. The smile of God. The beauty of God. 
shining upon you. Not on all, of course. The grace of God does not shine on all. Not on all men. The grace of God does not shine on the beast who will be described in the book of Revelation rising out of the sea who represents the Antichrist. The grace of God does not shine upon the false prophet who props up the kingdom of the beast, both of whom will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone in the end in God's judgment. The grace of God does not shine on the wicked who receive the mark of the beast in their foreheads and who wail before the return of Christ. The grace of God does not shine upon every person head for head who can be found in a church where there is a golden candlestick. The grace of God did not shine upon wicked Jezebel, for example, who led the church into her fornication and heresy and whom Jesus Christ promised would be cast into a bed of destruction. Not on all, but on everyone whom Jesus Christ loves. On everyone whom Jesus Christ washes in His own blood. To everyone who is called out as kings and priests in the kingdom of God, grace be unto you and peace. Peace is the effect when grace is unto you. Peace is the effect when the heavenly face of God is shining upon you to bless you. When God is smiling on you, You have peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you need not be afraid. You need not be afraid of dreadful things that may happen in the future of this life. You need not be afraid of the return of Jesus Christ when He comes. You will not be among those who wail at the return of the judge when He comes in the clouds. You need not fear tribulation in this earth. You can sing. And peace like a river attendeth my way when, or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. Grace be unto you and peace. And these are not merely words, beloved. The triune God who speaks this benediction is the God who speaks and it is done. He is the God who commands and it stands fast, who calls the things that be not as though they were. His word is a power to everyone who believes. Whatever fears may be clouding your mind today, beloved, whatever besetting sins you may be wrestling with, Hear the benediction of God and of Christ who is coming. Grace be unto you and peace. That such a benediction could be certain is challenged and undermined by the enemies of God. The certainty of God's benediction of grace and peace unto His people was challenged in the days when Christ walked on this earth by those who took Him and pierced Him. 
Now the piercing of Jesus Christ, that is the crucifying of Jesus Christ, was motivated by more than one motivation when it came to His enemies. It was motivated by the envy of the scribes and the Pharisees who wanted Jesus out of their way. They wanted to be the teachers. They wanted to be the ones that everybody followed. Not this Jesus. The piercing of Christ was motivated by the greed of Judas Iscariot who loved money more than the Lord. The piercing of Christ was motivated by the cowardice of Pontius Pilate who feared for his own skin more than he feared God. The piercing of Christ was motivated by the fickleness of the people, the multitudes who one day welcomed Jesus with open arms crying Hosanna to the Son of David and the next day condemned Him and cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! The piercing of Christ was motivated by the cruelty the love of violence of the Roman soldiers who wielded the hammer and the nails that were driven through His hands and feet. The piercing of Christ was motivated by the malice, by the pride, by the folly of that old serpent who is called the devil and Satan who stood behind all of these things. This was a complex action that took place. The piercing of Christ But at bottom, you might say, it was motivated by one thing. And it was this. Not from you. Not from you, Jesus. No grace from you. No peace from you. We will not have it. We do not want it. We do not want grace from you. We do not want the kind of grace that you give. We do not want the kind of grace that identifies us as ugly sinners who need to be washed in blood. We don't want that kind of grace. Which is the only kind of grace that you give. We don't want peace from you. We don't want the kind of peace that would reconcile us to God, but then leave us in a world where we will face tribulation and be tested in our faith for a time. We don't want that kind of peace, which is the only kind of peace that you give. And whatever it is, whether it's grace or peace, blessing, benediction, we do not want it from you, Jesus. We want you away from us. Far away from us where we will never hear from you again. We want you dead. Those things are related, you see. Piercing the Lord was not merely a spontaneous act that arose out of passions of men that had been stirred up at a moment. Piercing the Lord was a calculated rejection of Him and of everything that He came to do and everything that He came to bring and everything that He represented. It was a calculated rejection of His blessings of grace and peace. It was a calculated rejection of the benediction that is grounded in His work as the Messiah. It is a calculated rejection of the possibility that any good thing could come out of this person. We do not want it. We do not want you. So they pierced him. The 
the certainty of this benediction of grace and peace has been and continues to be challenged by God's enemies to the present day, by those who are from all the kindreds of the earth that are mentioned in verse 7. It wasn't only those who had a direct hand in piercing Him, you see. It wasn't only the devil or Judas or Pilate or the soldiers or the multitudes who at that time cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. The certainty of this benediction, the certainty of grace and peace coming from Jesus Christ is challenged by everyone who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ along with its benediction of grace and peace and rejects it and hardens their heart against it and walks away from it. The certainty of this benediction is challenged by everyone who grows up hearing the gospel in a church like this one, only to walk away from it in unbelief. The writer to the Hebrews says that such people crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, putting Him to an open shame. That's Hebrews 6, verse 6. That rejection of the gospel is as bad as if they had been there in that time and place when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him. And this sort of rejection of the gospel was something that would have been familiar to the church in the days when John was writing these words. There were those who sat in these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, and Asia Minor, heard the benediction and walked away from it. And they were not only Jews, but they were those from all the kindreds of the earth, the Gentiles also. And that's the way it's been throughout all of church history as the gospel has been proclaimed in every nation, tribe, and kindred among men as all kinds of people, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, have heard, at least outwardly, the preaching of the gospel and the benediction that accompanies it. That benediction has also been rejected by many. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge that says, that's ridiculous. Grace and peace from God? Grace and peace from Jesus Christ? That's absurd. There is no such thing, and there will be no such thing. There is no future return of this person, Jesus Christ, who was dead and buried long ago, and there he remains in the tomb. That's a challenge. Unbelief and refusal to repent is a challenge against the validity and the certainty of this benediction of grace and peace unto God's people. It's a challenge that can feel rather imposing. Maybe it feels imposing to the young person or the young adult who grew up being taught the faith, but now she's in college and she's hearing her professors deride Christianity, call into question the certainty of the Holy Scriptures, saying things like this in different words, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have for the beginning. From the beginning, there's no return of Jesus Christ, no visible coming 
of the Son of Man on the clouds. That's ludicrous. That challenge can feel rather imposing to us as we live a little flock, a little flock in the midst of a world of millions, hundreds of millions, billions who do not believe in Jesus Christ and who reject the Gospel It's an imposing challenge or it can feel imposing to us. But despite the imposing nature of that challenge, the benediction is certain. It is certain because it is connected to the coming again of Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven. That's what verse 7 declares to us. Behold, He cometh with clouds and every eye shall see Him and those who pierced Him. And all kindreds of the nations shall wail because of Him. He's coming. That establishes the certainty of this benediction of grace and peace unto you. And it's not just because He's coming at the end of all things so that one day you will finally see Him, although that's true. There will be a day when everyone looks up and sees the Son of Man bodily and visibly coming in the clouds. That will include all the kindreds of the nations who heard the Gospel and rejected it. That will include the scribes and the Pharisees who envied Him and brought Him before Pontius Pilate under false accusations. That will include Pontius Pilate himself. That will include Judas Iscariot. That will include the Roman soldiers who pounded the nails through His hands and feet. They will all see Him. All men will see Him. Even those who die before this time will be called out of the grave and they will see Him coming. And the coming of that day stands as a warning. It's a warning against everyone who scoffs at the Word of God that proclaims the coming again of the Son of Man. It's a warning to everyone who lives in unbelief, a warning to everyone who refuses to walk in repentance and faith. He is coming. Whether you say so or not, He is coming. And when He comes, all who rejected Him will wail in fear and dread. They will cry to the mountains to fall on them and hide Him from His dreadful coming. Do not scoff. Do not scoff at the return of Christ. Do not shrug your shoulders in indifference at the benediction of grace and peace that comes from this returning Jesus Christ. Let your heart be soft, rather. Hear Him when He speaks to you. Hear Him today when He speaks to you and believe His Word. For by faith, you have nothing to fear when He comes. By faith, grace and peace is yours. But the certainty of that benediction is not only connected to the fact that one day He will come, it's connected to the fact that always He is coming. Always He is coming. And that's why it's so foolish to scoff at His coming again. That's why it's so foolish to turn your face away in rejection of His benediction. He is coming! And He's not coming unannounced. He's not coming without warning. 
He's coming among many signs. He's coming as many heralds announce His coming. He's coming as trumpets are blasting. He's coming as the things foretold in Scripture are fulfilling before our very eyes. It was foolish as well as wicked to pierce the Christ. Why? Because it was so very clear. It was so very clear that He was exactly who He said He was. They pierced the one who walked on the water. They pierced the one who preached with authority and they heard that note of authority in His voice. The authority that differentiated Him from the scribes and set Him apart as the Son of God. They pierced the one who multiplied the loaves and 5,000 people witnessed it. They pierced the one who changed water to wine, who raised Lazarus from the dead. They pierced Him knowing full well who He was for all the signs made it clear. And all the signs in the world today also make it clear. He is coming. And His coming is as certain as the next earthquake that rumbles somewhere in the world. His coming is as certain as the next tsunami that you hear about or the next war that you read about in the news. He is coming. Beloved, though this is dreadful news for all who scoff and live in unbelief, it's good news to you who believe in Him. It's good news because it establishes the validity and the certainty of this benediction of God that is upon you. Grace and peace is certainly yours. The benediction, the blessing of God is on your life and you may know this and you may know it with absolute certainty for behold, He is coming with the clouds. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, who is and who was and who is to come. And He's your Christ. And He loves you. And He has washed you from your sins with His own blood. It's certain. Don't doubt it. The calling of the text then, first of all, is simply this. The first word of verse 7. Behold. Look. Watch. Be awake. Be alert. Pay attention. He's coming. He's coming with grace. He's coming with peace. He's coming with blessing. He's coming to you. He's coming for you. Behold! Beloved, do you do that? Are you watching? Are you paying attention? Or are you too absorbed in the things on your television screen? Or in your career to pay any attention to this? 
Not that it's wrong to watch television. Not that it's wrong to be busy in a career. Martin Luther once said if he knew for sure that Jesus was coming tomorrow, he would still plant a tree today. It's because as Christians we have a vocation. We have to be busy. We have a calling to work. Calling to live. But as you are busy with the daily matters of life, as you are busy in your family, as you are busy in your work, as you are busy in school, as your head lifted up, as you're making plans for vacation this summer, are you thinking, Jesus is coming again? He's coming soon! And more important than the rest and the enjoyment that I experience on my vacation, more important than that, as important as that may be, is the grace and peace of God that the return of Jesus promises. Behold, He's coming. He's coming to you. Are you watching? But the calling is not only to watch for His coming in the future, the calling is also very firmly rooted in the present. Which calling is to glorify Him because He pronounces this blessing upon you. Because He is coming again. Glorify Him. Worship Him. That's the doxology in verses 5 and 6. Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And John does not mean for us only to read those words and nod our heads and say, Yes, I agree, John. Those are good words to say. No, John means for us to take those words in our own hearts, to put them on our own lips, to adorn our own lives with this confession. Yes, to Him be glory. To Him be dominion. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy to receive glory and honor and riches and wisdom. The One who loved us and washed us in His own blood. Glorify Him. You do that, beloved, first of all. When you bow your hearts before Him. When you tremble at His Word. When you live in repentance and faith. You do that first of all, beloved, when you reject the scoffing attitude of this world, the indifference, the casual indifference and apathy of this world, of many who sit in Christian congregations. And instead of that casual apathy and indifference or scoffing attitude, you say, yes, grace and peace from Jesus Christ who is coming. There's nothing more that I need than that. And if I have nothing at all, if I have nothing, even my daily bread being taken away from me, but I have that grace and peace, God's smile on me, God's approval on me, if I have that, if only I have that, then I'm a happy man. I'm a happy woman. 
when I'm a happy young person, happy boy, happy girl, if I may know that God smiles on me, His benediction is on me. Don't you know that, beloved? That's where our joy is. That's where all of our hope is. All of our peace. This benediction, this blessing from Christ who is coming again for you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for pronouncing this blessed word upon us. Give us ears to hear it. Let it resonate deep within us. Go with us everywhere we go. Keep us, O Father, from the apathy, the indifference of this world or the scoffing. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen the faith of our children and our young people. Where faith is lacking, work it by Thy Spirit. Send us away with Thy blessing upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number 128. Let's sing all three stanzas.